Hi there, Duncan Green here with another um, uh, message from lockdown prison here in London. Um, uh, it's starting to feel like um, Robinson Crusoe or something, sending messages in a bottle, but there we go. Um, Grey, grim, nothing to look forward to this weekend, so I might as well talk to you. Um, so let's go through the um, posts on this week's From Poverty to Power uh, activity. Um, first up, we had a piece by Oxfam's Head of Policy and Advocacy, Sam Nadel, um, on the fairly depressing state of British foreign policy and in particular British aid. His post was called Global Britain or Little Britain? Question mark, because at that point it wasn't definite that the UK government was about to slash aid. Um, by the end of the week it was, so the answer to that question mark is Little Britain, not Global Britain. Um, so far in the last couple of weeks we've cut aid and raised the spending on, in inverted commas, defence, which is of course weapons and soldiers and quite a lot of attack as well as defence, um, by about the same amount, about five billion pounds a year going off aid and onto defence. So you can't really say that this is all about, you know, um, cutting spending because of COVID. This is about shifting priorities. Um, and uh, I think that should be clear. And not only that is entirely intellectually incoherent because, because the government has a big integrated review of foreign defence, security and development policy, but it hasn't reported yet. It's reported next, next, early next year. Uh, but they decided to make all the cuts uh, in some areas on aid and there's a big increase in defence um, before they get the findings of their review. How silly is that? And on top of that, they've decided to scrap one of the most respected development departments in the world, DFID, and fold it in to the Foreign Office. So um, basically, bleh. it's uh, it's been a bad couple of weeks. Um, there are a few silver linings. Uh, Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, is sort of committed to getting back to 0.7 at some point, which would be good. The, 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 you know, the legal, supposedly legal uh, minimum of UK aid spending. And um, there was some interesting, he wrote a letter to Sarah Champion, the chair of the, Internet, the Development Select Committee in Parliament, which also mentioned that they were going to have a good hard look at the, uh, the way DFID spending rules have meant that they shovel out loads of money to management consultants on some fairly dubious projects. So there, there are a few things, to straws to clutch at, but overall the, the, the news has been really, really bad for a couple of weeks now. And um, huge, you know, the, 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 the aid people in the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office are going to spend the next year breaking their promises, cancelling contracts, trying to implement that massive cut in aid. So they're going to have a grim time and their partners even more so. So uh, yeah, pretty bad. Anyway, so therefore, uh, the following post was links I liked. I tried to put in a bit of you know um, humour and pleasantness. Um, the sweetest thing that's been going around the, the, the interwebs for uh, ages is this uh, Maori baby in a romper suit doing a hacker. I mean, it's completely clickbaity and nothing to do with aid and development, really. But I just thought it was so gorgeous that I put that in. And then someone's done one of those cut and paste um, things where they've taken Trump, Donald Trump, speaking different words and turned it into a concession speech. Uh, the concession speech he ought to have made by now. Um, and uh, it's kind of a nice fantasy to see what a what a what a gracious concession speech might look like. Uh, I don't think we're going to get one anytime soon. 
Next post up was a, a review of a book by a friend of mine, Paul O'Brien, who's the head of advocacy at Oxfam America. And Paul thought he was onto a surefire thing. He thought, right, I'm going to write a book which will come out at the start of the Biden administration. And he wrote it when, you know, all the opinion polls looked as though um, uh, Joe Biden was a shoe in So, you yeah, know, no risk. And I did think on, a, on you know, on the night of the third, um, uh, wow, um, how is Paul feeling now as it seemed like Trump might get a second term? But uh, in the end, they didn't have to pulpit. He got through. Um, and uh, it, it's got some really interesting stuff in there. His aims are very high. You know, it, it, this book aims to convince you that a massive power switch, the name of the book, is possible and could begin in the next couple of years. This pandemic could be the catalyst for a massive transformation of power relations, a new social contract in the US and a shared global struggle between activists around the world to confront and defeat an inequality virus that left us unprepared for this pandemic and its economic consequences. So he's basically arguing that, you know, this is a critical juncture. Uh, if you've got your ideas clear, as activists, you should be trying to use the critical juncture to make a big shift in the way the world works. Um, his, his big beef, and we've had big arguments over this, is, is, is how do activists talk about power? There's two basic ways of thinking about power. That can be a positive sum where, you know, I am empowered, I feel better about myself, I feel more sense of agency, I can go out and express my opinion. And then there's the zero-sum game, which is to give me power, I have to take it away from someone else. And obviously, in reality, it's a combination of the two. But Paul's beef is that in recent decades, the way empowerment has edged out power in activist discourses reflects a preference for the kumbaya positive-sum version, and it's gone too far. So he thinks you've got to get a bit more hard-nosed and say, no, it's not enough to just say empowerment. We've got to take power away from the people who've got too much of it. If we're if we're gonna if the people who need who don't have enough and need more are going to get it, and he's got this great quote in campaign after campaign, international activists fought to mobilise and empower the world against no one. I thought that was, that was a very pithy way of putting his argument that we've got to get back to some zero sum work. So that was all great, but then I just thought he kind of lost the plot a bit. He, 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 you know, so the way these, the way most books like this are structured is you do a, you you have a, a diagnosis of the problems that you're you're seeking to address. You have some sort of conceptual framework for thinking about that, and then you get onto the so what's. And in book after book after book, the so what's are the hardest chapters to read or write, or you know, it's really difficult. Um, and I think Paul's book reflects that. So. You know, he's had this big picture discussion on power, but then he seems to have an attack of vertigo from all this helicopter thinking. And what he actually says needs to happen is pretty much the the uh, agenda that Oxfam's had for 15, 20 years. You know, tax reform, debt relief, climate change action, um, decarbonisation. So, yeah, the question emerges, why do you have to do all that rethinking in order to come up with what you were going to say anyway? Um, but there's a so underlying problem here, which is, you know, activists tend to talk about two kinds of change, transformational change and transactional change. Now, transformational change has a sort of implicit understanding that everything has to change if anything useful is going to happen. And what do you do while you're, you know, while you're advocating for that? Because that may never happen. It's certainly not going to happen soon. So then you do advocacy around transactional change, tweaks to policy, new taxes, new laws, changes in behaviours, norm shifts, lots of other things within the existing system. 
But how those two things fit, the transformational and the transactional, is really, really unclear. Um, and I think this book is just you know, one illustration of that underlying problem. So I think if you're interested about provocations about power and activism, definitely worth reading. It's only 82 pages, won't take you long. Um, it's a provocative book and I think that's really, that's really helpful. Next up was uh, my colleague Maria Faciolinze, who, who does every now and then, she produces these absolute blockbuster resource lists and they, they, they get loads of hits, loads of people use them, they become kind of, and they're building up into an enormous back catalogue of incredibly useful um, uh, uh, sets of links. And Maria runs this, this project we've got called Power Shifts, which is trying to shift power to new voices, voices from the South, voices normally excluded, um, people not like me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and had the result, this resource list was on gender-based violence and it was timed because um, Thursday was the International Day to End Violence Against Women, uh, kicking off 16 days of activism around um, violence against women, gender-based violence, there are different slight nuances, but basically that idea. Um, and there's absolutely, yeah, these, these resource lists are pretty long, certainly longer than most blogs. Um, lots of papers, lots of links to blogs, lots of videos, lots of websites to consult, toolkits. You know, uh, it's far too long to go through. I do, re yeah, please go and look at it. A few things that, that jumped out. The way gender-based violence, GBV, has been characterised as a shadow pandemic in, in, uh, in COVID. Way back in April, we had a post from... Uh, a colleague in Tanzania, um, uh, Mishi, talking about um, how everyone, yeah, if, if everybody's in lockdown, you can expect a surge of gender-based violence because um, women are going to be locked up with their abusers, basically. Um, and sure enough, that's become absolute reality. Mishi completely called it right and uh, it's become a major issue. So Maria has a whole set of uh, links and examples of work around GBV in COVID. Um, Another thing which struck me, a whole discussion on what is online GBV. So everything's going online, including abuse and including, um, uh, you know, rights violations. So there's an effort to kind of define and understand what online GBV looks like and how it affects people. Um, and then sort of broad brush, five principles, 10 actions for a feminist post-COVID recovery. So looking at the, do you just... You know, return to how things were before, not particularly great if you're coming from a feminist perspective, or can you build in a feminist element to the recovery? So there's some good principles and actions there. So I think a, 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 just a fantastic resource list. Last post of the week, uh, I have to say this was my favourite. Um, Is COVID a window of opportunity for localising aid? learning from a natural experiment in the Pacific. And this was a guest post by Chris Roach, Josie Flint and Fiona Tarpey, um, who are based in Australia and do a lot of work in the Pacific Islands. And um, they've been doing some fascinating surveys of humanitarian workers in a bunch of the Pacific Islands, places like Fiji, Vanuatu and so on, um, and the Solomons. Uh, and their basic argument is, as the COVID pandemic spread around the world, a significant natural experiment took place in the Pacific. The vast majority of non-Pacific international aid workers, technical specialists and diplomats returned to their home countries. Preliminary findings of a real-time monitoring exercise of the effects on developments and humanitarian organisations and their ways of working are revealing some interesting shifts. 
So this reminded me a bit of, you know, Darwin's finches in the Galapagos. Uh, you know, suddenly uh, the local actors are in a new situation in the Pacific Islands and the aid system starts to evolve in interesting and new ways. And that's what um, the, the research is trying to identify. And in particular, they had a, a humanitarian event, Tropical Cyclone Harold in April, which was a massive storm that caused widespread destruction. So they could see how the humanitarian system in particular kicked in after Harold when all the white men and women in shorts had disappeared. Um, so here are some of the things they found. First of all, of course, they found that local actors took the lead. There weren't any other actors. But, the, but it's much more interesting than that. First of all, the response was somehow more female. A shift away from the more typical male-dominated command and control mode of cyclo-response, cyclone response to one that emphasizes skills and experience and engagement and communication. The greater use of social media, such, such as Facebook, Messenger and WhatsApp, also created more informal space for women's engagement. So that's that's interesting. It sort of somehow feminized the response. But yeah, just as interesting, a changed work environment. The, yeah, the, 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 the interviews report that this has meant more relational and culturally appropriate ways of working, including meetings being held in local languages, more systematic inclusion of prayers at the beginning and end of meetings, and generally less formality. They speak of a more relaxed atmosphere with more laughter and less sense of surveillance. Moreover, Pacific Islanders point to reduced need to negotiate their professional and personal lives, for instance, with children more commonly present in the office after school. They also note increased levels of communication and collaboration between Pacific Islander staff within organisations and across organisations as competition between agencies reduces. So it's incredibly positive, from my point of view, changes in the way that the humanitarian system is working, but it's not all, you know, uh, roses and, 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 and unicorns. There's still a kind of internalised um, problem, which, uh, which the interviews also identified. They note, uh, the interviewees note a, nervous, a nervousness to step into leadership roles because of a fear that their leadership must resemble the model established by international managers and that they will not be supported if they fail by those measures. Respondents spoke about a continuing colonisation of the mind, worrying that they are unable to match the expertise of expatriates even when they know this is not the case. So that's like, that's really interesting that it takes, a, you know, that the, the aid is a system deeply ingrained, both in national staff and international staff. You can't just change it overnight. There's a kind of decolonization of the mind required as well as a decolonization of the system. Brilliant research. Um, do read the paper or at least read the blog. I think it's really good. And obviously the massive question for the researchers and for the world is how much of this will stick if, and when COVID is over, yeah, will will it be like you know um, Rosie the Riveter and women in the factories after World War Two who all were shoved back into the homes the men came back from the war, or will it be um, that the, the research by uh, Chris Josie and Fiona and other sort of learning will actually inform a shift towards genuine localization in the humanitarian sector. So I think this is very important research. I really hope it has the influence it deserves because there's some, there's some fantastic stuff that needs to be preserved here. And on that optimistic note, have a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.